back to Noise Extra. I'm Gray Holger, here with my co-host Tara Connolly. Hello there. And Mike Connolly. Hello. And our return guest, Chris Sienko. Hi. He teleported here. I'm so glad he teleported. <laughs> Guys, I have a teleporter now. Uh, it's great. so cool. Thank you they so much. They said it for... couldn't be done. It only goes to California. <laughs> yeah. Directly into the Noise right. Extra studio. It Convenient. Yeah. Convenient. Yeah. Sometimes it's convenient. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, ooh, Chris picked a doozy today. Robert Ashley's The Wolfman. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. This is this marks the farthest in time uh, back that we've gone on the podcast before the, the Lamont Young episode was oh, yeah. held that distinction. And now we're going even farther back. 1964, when it was originally composed. This is a recording, uh, we believe, from 1967. Mm-hmm. which was released in 1968 originally. Uh, and uh, this is some early noise, man. Yeah. Yeah, this is this is like a, a sort of ground zero. And it's like a ground zero of the frenzy of noise because there's a lot of things that do the texture of noise around this time. There's a lot of John Cage stuff that does kind of the texture of mm-hmm. noise. But this this really captures that sort of rising frenzy of noise perfectly. I had to keep saying there's no pedals in this. Wow, there's no pedals in this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is, yeah, I mean, I this is, I mean, this is noise. This is what yeah. this is. This is a noise composition. Got it written in my notes. It's noise, um, <laughs> noise. So, Chris, I mean, let's. Yeah. I think you know, you 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 brought this us. We we're so excited that this is what we were doing with you. I guess get where where did where did you come to Robert Ashley? Where did you come to this? Give us give us a little background on your relationship with this uh, re- recording. I don't know. I'm I've I've. I've gotten pretty obsessive with Robert Ashley within the last 10 years, uh, sort of all different eras. I mean, there's there's a, a a clear era of the sort of noise dudes, Robert Ashley. Obviously, the Wolfman is like the king of that pack. And there's a couple other things from around there that have similar attraction where it's like, if you like noise, you'll probably like this. I'm really, really in love with his his later operas, which tend to be, uh, you know, maybe a little more MIDI, a little more digital sounding, maybe not quite as like harsh or abrasive. Uh, lots of words and, you know, and but they're just like these incredible, deeply, deeply packed librettos that go, you know, in every direction and basically attempt to sort of tell the history of the, the migration in the United States from the east to the west coast. And but, you know, you always come back to these these early experiments of his. And, you know, I don't know what my first Robert Ashley was, but I think when you start, li- you know, after listening to noise for so long, you start going, well, I know there's other sort of antecedents and you start trying to find John Cage. And, you know, like an early one for me was finding uh, a Stockhausen LP at the Saginaw Valley State University Library. And it was one of those record libraries where you couldn't check them out. You had to listen to it on campus. So they would lock you in a little room Mm -hmm. with a turntable. And I snuck in a four track recorder and like, you know, instead of putting (laughs) instead of putting headphones in there, I just stuck it into my four track and, and did. I, I mean, you know, obviously you have to listen to it, you know, on a four track or else it's, you know, like, you know, you only hear half of it or whatever. But, you know, like when it was that hard to find sort of that academic stuff and you, you know, you realize it's it's got kind of a different uh, sort of like energy point and you just, I don't know, you just get that that frenzy and, you you, you know, and then when you hear, the, you know, the Wolfman for the first time, I think it was probably in the school radio catalog. Like Scott Faust mm-hmm. sold the LP and the CD of this for a long time and would basically just said like this is white house but from 1964 you know and white house is a great reference point because this is while listening to it i was like this is actually the foundation of power electronics in a way of like they're they're not shy about saying that either Mm -hmm. i think they heard the the source 10 inch originally and i I think it was one of those sort of like touch points where they were like you know when they were saying like we want it to have elements of this this and this you know yoko ono was a huge one robert ashley Mm -hmm. was you know a big one and stuff like that so yeah the yeah, it's it's a very very natural line to draw from. So, that. is this the only thing you snuck in and recorded at the library? I have a feeling it wasn't. <laughs> uh, no, I have, <laughs> I have, I have a small stack of tapes of of um, yeah, John Cage records, Stockhausen records, um, just whatever I could grab, you know, and uh, uh, you know, and before they come knocking on the door and ask why you've been in there for four hours or whatever. <laughs> well, I think you're safe on the statute of limitations for the copying, but there might still be some issues with possession of contraband. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> You'll never Cops. catch me, copper. Yeah, the Fed destroyed that a long time ago. They, yeah. they caught him. Yeah, yeah. They did. <laughs> so Robert Ashley, uh, born in Ann Arbor. Yep. And mm-hmm. and lived in California, Michigan, and then fin- New York was kind of his home, I think, 
Yeah, for, for the for the majority of the. Fu- I think the, you're right. Yeah, mm-hmm. he moved to California. I think kind of in the late seventies after a pretty maybe an acrimonious breakup. I, I, some of his later mm-hmm. operas. There's one called uh, Foreign Experiences, which is about a uh, uh, a professor that moves to California and sort of just hides in his apartment and hears like snakes coming out of the wall and is drinking a lot. Like, I think that one is incredibly autobiographical um, and it's, nice. it says as much. So a lot of what I know about Robert Ashley comes from uh, a slim, but very, very uh, essential book by Kyle Gann, um, who also wrote uh, a number of, he, he was, he wrote a lot of stuff about kind of new music and, and New York. And there's, uh, there's one, that I think it's called, um, I'm never gonna remember it. All right, never mind. Um, <laughs> but it's part of an American composer series, university, uh, university of Illinois press put it out. Uh, and it's about as much it's is a good of clearinghouse for like Robert Ashley knowledge as you're going to find. It covers, uh, you know, the Sonic Arts Union. It covers like his childhood. You know, he he was born into a, a, a rural family, you know, farmers. And, you know, it was very weird to, you know, to, to be the child that says I'm going to go off and study composition. And, mm-hmm. you know, he said early on, like, if I'm going to do something that's so completely different from my family, he said he he pledged to himself very early on that I'm going to do this you know, the way my family, you know, you know, farms, like we're going to do this 12 hours a day, every day. This is not just like when I feel like it or that, or the, and so he had just this incredible work ethic, I think his entire life. And that's how you get, you know, just those incredibly dense concentrations of words on things like perfect lives or mm-hmm. Atlanta and so forth is that he just had this, uh, you know, this, this sort of family work ethic d- uh, distilled into them. And so I know he, he, he went to the university of Michigan, studied composition there, uh, was, I think sort of studying at that point, it was a lot of serialists. So it was a lot of like 12 tone composers. And that was like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, oh, current. And so I think he and people like Alvin Lucier and Gordon Mama and David Behrman, uh, formed the Sonic Arts Union as kind of this reaction. Like they were like, there's got to be other ways to do this. They were taking some of the, you know, John Cage and Morton Feldman strategies, but also applying them into, uh, you know, physics and acoustics and 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 so forth. Uh, and I think that was also kind of the roots of the Once Festival, which, you know, is mentioned yeah. in here and there's the box set. So the Once Festival was something he started. The, the four mm-hmm. of them, I think, kind of started it. And it was, it was kind of a way to... Um, uh, showcase, you know, the, their music that wouldn't otherwise get showcased elsewhere. And, you know, was, I think, fairly controversial at the time. Like, you know, they they would bring in people from other other places, but it was a lot of, you know, this is 19, what, 61, I think, when it started. And, and to have these kind of fluxus elements of, you know, people doing things that aren't just playing music in the hall and stuff like it. By the time I think once dissolved, like people kind of got it. But those first couple of years, you know, you would get these these mass walkouts or these, you know, the audience kind of, you know, rebelling or, or yelling or doing whatever, you throwing know, things. throwing yeah, things, exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> throwing punches. <laughs> and the Wolfman was performed at one of the ones festivals. Is that as far as we can tell? Well, boy, the text is really, really, <laughs> it, it varies from thing to thing. And I've not been able to sort of like get a definitive answer, but I think, well, actually I think Kyle Gann says in the book, uh, the first one was performed at Charlotte, Charlotte Mormon's Festival of the Avant-Garde, the first one in uh, uh, New York City. Uh, and it, it says uh, that uh, 1964, Ashley produced the work uh, which, which, with which his name became most closely associated for decades. Uh, a singer in New York had asked Morton Feldman for a piece, but he didn't want to write it. So he passed on the unpaid commission to Ashley. <laughs> Ashley didn't want to write the conventional kind of piece that would have satisfi- satisfied the singer, but he agreed to write a piece anyway. He comments. Uh, that's the way things came t- uh, to pass in those grim days. Ashley had been wanting to work with feedback, and this was his only opportunity. Uh, he instructs the piece to be performed in an environment of loudspeakers in which the amplification is turned up to the level at which any sound entering the microphone will result in feedback. And he notes, Ashley was right that Feldman Singer would decline the piece. He premiered it himself on September 1st, 1964 at Judson Hall as part of the first uh, New York Festival of the Avant-Garde organized by avant-garde cellist and performer Charlotte Mormon. So I think it started in 1964. Yeah. The recording that I think we listened to is from 1967, possibly. Um, Can also, you imagine that sound check where they're calibrating the <laughs> microphone and just like, oh, back it down one more. And then every time somebody coughs or sneezes, it just begins. Uh-huh. <laughs> I also wonder if like it was one of those kind of things like a lot of noise people do where they 
they give kind of a false sound check to the to the sound guy and then oh, yeah. and then push it later. <laughs> you know, you don't want to you want to let them know you're redlining. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh no, this is where I'm going. This is where it's going to be. Oh, yeah, don't worry. You're fine. Have, don't worry have about it. Absolutely done that before. Or, uh-huh. or like when it's like, no, turn the amp to seven. Yes, it's all the way up. <laughs> The thing that uh, blew me away was that uh, Morton Feldman eventually heard the piece and said he really, really liked it and had positive feedback. And if you've heard Morton Feldman before, like this is about as far from his work as you could mm-hmm. imagine. So, it, it, you know, I mean, the guy, the guy had big ears. He just didn't do, you know, this kind of thing. I love I love Feldman's work. And I yeah. can see one parallel in the sort of the repetition with slight tonal changes that uh, Ashley is intoning in this, which is a pair, you know, a parallel to yes. Feldman's work. So for sure, it does make sense. The appreciation of it. Mm-hmm. So we 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 are slightly unclear. This was so the version we listened to was on the Algamargan CD that collects the yes. Wolfman, the Bottleman, the Fox, and the Wolfman tape. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so we th- we th- we we're we're pretty confident this was performed. This is a version from 1967. Is that I think I think that's what the the credits say. Mm-hmm. It it says something like uh, first performed at, in 1964, but then it's, in, in the so there's also a version of this that's on the. Uh, uh, the three CD source music of the avant-garde compilation, which compiles the original 10 inches that came with source magazine. Uh, and I think that version came from 1967. It says in there. So it was, uh, and again, uh, Kyle Gann's book notes that it was recorded several times in 1967. And then I think 68 and 79 and 85 or something like that. A couple of times by Ashley, sometimes by other people. This is awesome. I mean, I know I and, was just thinking I, like it'd be and so I, fun. Honestly, to see. the one I think White House definitely is yeah, there's parallels to White House, but for me, I was hearing a lot of Hydrokaiden because of the mm-hmm. the high, the kind of searing high tones of the feedback and the kind of freedom and wildness of it. The chaotic noise of the uh, the Wolfman tape or Fourth of July tape, right? Whichever whichever is the backing mm-hmm. on this, uh, like cut up tape collage with sort of a lot of electronic sounds, descending tones. Uh, and then there's also just, you know, it opens with the, what felt like to me, uh, the sound of a living space. It's not like a, a communal kitchen in a, in a loft art space or something is yeah. like how yeah, the, like it if feels with the, there's you hear people over here, conversations and sort of stuff going on in the background is this sort of slowly works its way into. It's like when you the stay area. the night uh, and you're on tour and you stay the night at a place that has lots of people living in it, or you're staying yeah, in an art exactly. space and you wake up and then you realize just how many people are living there and it's echoing because it's a giant warehouse or it's like bouncing off some wooden floor and you're like, Oh God. And that's the sound. <laughs> yeah, and like, you just, yeah. you just hope you smell coffee next. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, the, the 4th of July starts out as uh, an omnidirectional recording of a backyard party on the 4th of July. So it's, that's what you're hearing. Mm-hmm. You're hearing people on the 4th of July, Amazing. just hanging out, chatting, you know, they're initially laughing and you can almost sort of make out words that they're saying. And then, as the feedback starts to rise, like, I don't think their conversations change at all, but the sort of menace of the feedback starting to rise implants sort of like a menace into the conversation that you can hear as the as this tape starts to get overwhelmed by the, the performance. Well, I think we should discuss how the, the the mechanics of how this was performed, because, yeah, so we're saying there's tapes. So, so well, he pretty much provides an instructional manual in the liner notes, which is um, amazing. I'm just going to read it directly. The Wolfman is an amplified improvisation of four components of vocal sound to be performed simultaneously with either the Wolfman tape uh, or the 4th of July. The vocal sounds and tape composition are to be amplified in performance by separate monooral amplifier loudspeaker systems capable of producing extremely high sound levels throughout the performance space. And I will say that uh, this does note that the 4th of July from 1960 is 18 minutes long. So I suspect that was the background yes. noise because it sound the background tape that was used during this particular performance because mm-hmm. that is what it sounded like in the beginning. I don't know if there's any recordings of the Wolfman performed that have the Wolfman tape. The Wolfman tape six minutes long. Yeah. Although a, a terrible train spotter alert, there's actually a free jazz recording by uh, the Bob James trio on ESP, and the last track is called The Wolfman, and it's a jazz trio improvising over the Wolfman tape, the six minute one. <laughs> oh, really? That sounds yeah. great. It's, it is great. Yeah. I'd like to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. It's I, I brought it along. We can listen to it later. if you want. And, and <laughs> so basically he's very explicit at saying, um, this is not a performance that involves yelling. It is calibrating the microphone and the amplification system in such a way that any small sound creates, um, the feedback, um, initiates the feedback. And then from that point you use vowels 
um, in a soft manner and change them through what, like two minute intervals? Uh, I, th- I think it's I think it's you, oh, you start for three seconds, you it change it for 10 seconds mm-hmm. and then you hold that whatever you change it to for three seconds. Then yes. you take a breath. And I yes. think because it's so quiet and it's so controlled, I think it's probably like the equivalent of doing the like, uh, you know, yeah. game for 18 <laughs> minutes. Like it's I think it's a lot harder than it sounds. And I think it's probably why there's not that many performances of it. out Yeah. There. Doing that sustained for 18 minutes seems like you would have to really focus on not passing out. Was anyone <laughs> else doing that along with the recording or just me? <laughs> I, 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 I have, was. Yeah. I have I have done things before where I, I imagine, OK, what would I do at this point when I go up here? Would I change the vowel? Would I close my mouth more? Open it up? You know, like, I, I was hoping you guys couldn't hear me, but I was certainly uh, I, moaning along <laughs> with it. Like, I really was, I was uh, while too. listening yeah. to it because it, yeah. <laughs> it, it felt right. And I kind of wanted to see what it must feel like to perform this. So especially mm-hmm. at the beginning part of it, when the, when the vocals sort of come in, you really start to notice them. I think in around three forty-five, four minutes is when the, the vocal performance really kind of comes into your consciousness. And I, I started along with it. I was just, you know, uh, like thinking and thinking of doing it quietly into a microphone and changing the shape of my mouth mm-hmm. at, at different intervals to sort of feel what that would be like, just because, the way the feedback is going to interact with the sound bouncing in and out of even your your open mouth and the room itself is going idea. to be a, a different mm-hmm. thing, uh, and that's it's such a cool thing. Isn't it great when the feedback becomes an entity? So it's like it's it's a person, and there is another performer, and then that other performer is the feedback because it's going to change depending on the space. Like he's saying, this was performed in a very small room. Whereas if it was in a large room, the the feedback would have had much lower pitch. Oh, well, I, I have a story for that. that. Well, I, I was gonna, okay. That's actually why I marked that page because yeah. I was reading this story while we listened. This is a really amazing story. Yeah, uh, go ahead, go ahead and uh, relay it for. Yeah, everyone. well, he's actually notes two regrets about the Wolfman. One is that the piece was believed to consist of someone screaming into a microphone. In fact, he says the vocal sounds used to induce the feedback have to be incredibly soft so as not to block it, and the changes in the performer's vocal cavity have to are used to shape the feedback. The other regret is that he was never able to perform the work in a room large enough to get the feedback down to the register he wanted. The smaller the room, the higher the frequency of the feedback produced. And even in a medium-sized concert hall, the the sound is ear-splittingly shrill. But in 1994, Ashley visited Barcelona as a tourist and happened to wander into an immense cathedral as the Mm -hmm. priest was beginning to say the mass. The sound engineer had left the amplification on too high and had apparently gone to lunch. The priest realized the problem, but the engineer was gone and the feedback was low enough in pitch in about the same rage as his voice, so he just went ahead. According to Ashley, quote, It was remarkable and beautiful, as though the priest were being accompanied by a huge ghost choir singer singing Gregorian chant mm. in exactly the key and mode that the priest was using in his singing and chanting. I realized that I was listening to a version of the Wolfman in a way that I would never hear again. Wow. Yeah, yeah that was amazing. <laughs> I read that, that's why I marked yeah. that page, because yeah. that I was, was like, finally. Yeah. That, what an incredible experience to to see that, too, as well. It also really just gives you a sense, especially with Elvin Lucier, but Robert Ashley as well, just how much they were thinking about things, not just compositionally, but in terms of like acoustics and sort of physics properties and so forth. And, and you know, he could have just as easily said, I want it to be as high pitched as possible. But he was always thinking like, well, I'm never going to get the room that I want. But we just have to perform it with what I have. And that, that turns up a lot in his life. He doesn't always have the funding to do his operas the way he wants to. And it's not that he cuts corners, but he makes, you know, smart choices about like yeah. we have to get it done. And, uh, you know, I think he's he's especially inspiring to me in that he never just like throws up his hands and says, well, it can't be done. He's like, well, let's just do this version, you know. Um, yeah, I don't have the basilica, but, you know, right, I can use right. a concert hall. That's fine. yep. yep. <laughs> You know, uh, the use of feedback in the resonance of a room, uh, of course, I mean, obviously, Alvin Lucier is a great reference, but for a somewhat more contemporary reference, uh, Damien Romero popped into my head mm. immediately for mm. sort of his use of oh my God. the room and the feedback and control and sending tones out into the room and then reacting to the response of it by recording the room or processing the room through uh, geophones or other, you know, contact microphones or other uh, things on, on the actual surfaces of the room, on the floor of the room or the wall of the room or whatever. Um, and I think that's something that's very difficult to control and very difficult. I mean, it's different in every space you perform, even if you move a speaker a couple inches or move your device or there's a different number of people in the room where they move around in the room that changes that performance immediately. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's a, an interesting thing to think about that, you know, a lot of times as noise performers in the present day, we sort of just maybe take for granted the the space shape of the room and 
you're gonna what you're gonna perform it and what it's going to sound like and this is something that is like a living entity with the the people and the space and changes every time yeah there's no reason why like any number of noise people couldn't do this performance all the time in different rooms like it's such a malleable <laughs> thing and 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 could create such a different effect every single time I, I would love to see more performances of this just kind of out in the world i'm regretting right now that i haven't heard the source tapes Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which they're there. I mean, the, the Wolfman they're tape there, is on yeah. the CD. Is the 4th of July tape? 4th of July is on the um, the Music from the Once Festival, which is the five CD set. Um, yeah. And it's it's the unaccompanied tape as well. Oh, that's so cool. Because, I mean, even like reading about him saying that he wanted to be sure and that it came naturally at the 4th of July party, that the sounds were staccato enough that they would initiate the feedback and keep it moving mm-hmm. and that they were at all registers, like not yeah. just high frequencies, low frequencies, long sounds, short sounds, like you have a variety of things. Um, and so I, I love that that naturally occurred at the 4th of July. Well, party. there's also, there's some, there are some like uh, what sound like synthesized sounds or like, you know, electronic it does, sounds. There's some, there some tape manipulation. If you listen to the unaccompanied 4th mm-hmm. of July, there's. There's and I, definitely some some ta- some tape work going on. I was wondering if there were sp- sort of specific frequencies because they seem to sort of step down. They started the highest and kind of step lower, and mm-hmm. if that was in some way used to try and initiate the feedback that was going on and and bring mm-hmm. it lower in register yeah. or something by starting high and then bringing it down with lower and lower tones. He uh, says but, that that he he wanted to add the the backing tape because he I think he described it as like a thickener. Like you know mm-hmm. he said it wasn't going to be enough just to do the feedback, and he was smart enough in that regard, but. You know, the thing that was really interesting is when you're, you know, you, you really lose track of where the tape starts and where the feedback starts and where they, they 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 blend in like the most natural way. And it was a long time before I re-listened to the source tape that I realized I thought it was just like the most incredible feedback sounds. But a lot of it is the sort of the tape stuff as well. But yeah, obviously the feedback incredible as well. It's uh, you can really hear sort of almost a, a dive bomb uh, sort of clearing or emptiness when the vocal stop when he pauses for a breath and then it starts up again. It's it's those those shuddering inhales. You hear that <gasps> a very exciting uh, sort of dynamic to have in this thing is these yeah. extended tones. And then you're also constantly thinking breath. about the the fact that he's doing this right up to the very end of his. I mean, you can just hear him. Oh, yes. Yeah. <gasps> you know, and then it comes through again. And, uh, and that's the I think that the title brought a different character to that that portion of the performance because you know when you think wolfman you think like you know like a werewolf violent attacking you know growling grizzly but this isn't like that this is more like yeah this is more like a a lone howling wolf like a like a wolf not not a werewolf it's not a mad wolf it's a wolf by himself and he's he's howling at the moon or maybe howling to the pack and then maybe the pack howls back and then you have that cacophony of howls yeah. We certainly get that a lot with coyotes here. <laughs> the, the the pack was the party at the Fourth of July, maybe. And oh, then there he's, you go. Then he's yeah, howling at he's the howling pack. At the pack. I love it. I also <laughs> want to mention, just in terms of the visuals of it, uh, he also notes that in addition to the sound, uh, the vocalist is supposed to appear as a quote sinister nightclub vocalist with spotlight and in a nightclub space. So it's a dark. <laughs> It's a dark stage. He's in a spotlight. Oh yeah, like the moon. And That's he great. he's wearing like a suit or a tux. And there's a if you if you go to the uh, if you go to Getty Photos, you know the Getty Photo Research uh, site, and look up Robert Ashley Wolfman. There is a photo of the first performance of the Wolfman, uh, where the, and there's a, a tarp behind him. It says um, uh, the Wolfman replaces work for small hands or something like that. And I was that was such a confusing. Uh, you know, I was like, well, what does that have to do with the piece? But apparently, there was going to be a composition played called "Work for Small Hands," and that was the way of letting the audience know that this is not going to be the thing that Amazing. was in the. So they didn't. I don't think it was even in the program booklet. I think they they just <laughs> found out via this tarp that this was about to happen. But and that's then, a cool title in itself. Yeah. The Wolfman replaces the work for small hands. Yes. Hell yeah. yes. <laughs> <laughs> and you can see, yeah, Bob Ashley up there. He's he's you know, he looks like he's wearing maybe a brown suit. He's got his his seventies mustache and, and dark sun, like dark aviator sunglasses. And he's just stock still, his arms are behind his back and he's just got his mouth right up to that microphone. And it, it cuts a sinister figure for sure. I mean, that's the classic photo of this. If you haven't seen is like the, the cover of the like Alga Morgan LP or on this, uh, this CD is Robert Ashley face pressed, you know, mouth open at a strange angle right up against the microphone and just, really probably just emitting a low uh you know or however and you don't 
get that because it looks so uh, it looks like yelling. It looks like it's a really sort of ecstatic thing, but he's here controlling his breath and his voice for an extended period of time. Yeah, his his teeth seem to his teeth are bared in the photo there. Like yeah. you can, it's mostly his teeth and a wide open mouth, and it yeah. it it looks like a wolf man for sure. <laughs> well, you know this goes along so well with like the concept of the anti records too, because he does provide a blueprint on making the performance yourself. Like here's how you do it. Here's the source material. Here's the frequency range. Here's the duration of your sounds. Like it, it absolutely goes hand in hand with L- like the instructions for the honeymoon productions. Anti- <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That we did the, in the episode we did last time, Chris teleported here. Mm hmm. Yep. <laughs> yeah, and even like wind lick dirt, like any yeah, totally. Have you seen any performance of this ever? No, unfortunately. I've I've not seen any um I was kind of at the peak of my Robert Ashley frenzy when he passed away in 2014. 14. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds right. And there were a few performances. There was a perf- a really amazing performance of Perfect Lives that was having happening in in I think Brooklyn and each of the seven Acts, it's, it, you know, it's, it's a three and a half hour so-called opera for television because each piece is 25 minutes long and it was meant to be like the duration of like a half hour TV episode. You could watch, you could broadcast it over a course of a week and people could watch it. Amazing. Um, each of the seven parts takes place in a different location in the town, in the story. And so uh, the performance of Perfect Lives was in seven locations around Brooklyn, you know, for the for the bank, it took place in a bank. For the backyard, it took place in someone's backyard. For the bar, it took place in a bar. And you would have to travel from location to location to see each of the seven uh, acts being performed. And I wanted so badly to go to that. I don't. Th- <laughs> I think at that point, uh, Ashley was already in pretty poor health, and he didn't participate in it. But he he has has had a repertory group that has been doing his work, uh, you know, for a while, including his son Sam Ashley, who is on mm-hmm. most of the later recordings. Uh, and there are still a lot of people who are doing his later repertory in the in that form. I think there was a a performance of something in New York recently that I again couldn't get to. I don't have, have a teleporter there. And I think I I was reading. I think like Matt Mose has done a lot of performances mm. of his work. His, really, his recreate. Yeah, but I th- I thought it was really cool. Speaking of the Private Lives Opera, I, I I love that. Yes, it was made for TV, and his whole thing was he he. He really liked that he made it for TV and he in his he's like this is how we experience things now. Yes. And mm-hmm. and especially cuz it was the eight, it was in like early 80s is yeah. when it, it when it yeah. aired. It was finally finished in like 85 I think. Yeah. And he'd been working on it since about 76. But I sort of like that almost like I don't know what the word is. That, he maybe, wanted maybe to put himself in a modern context and mm-hmm. move yeah, forward. But, yes, with exactly. Way, with the way that people are currently processing media. But also kind of taking it out of like an, uh, an art or even like mm-hmm. a pretentious yes. element. And maybe that's from his coming up on a farming background, like a working kind of background. He was absolutely of the opinion that this was for everybody. And yeah, and, and it wasn't, it. I mean, it was mostly, it was shown a few times on, I think public TV stations or cable, you know, or access stations. But I think he really had it in his head that this would, this could be shown on primetime national tv like to him this is you know and those are fairly dense operas as well and the other thing again speaking of like something goes wrong and you push forward anyway but he composed them as 25 minute uh acts so because at that time 25 minutes with commercials was the length of a sitcom and then over the course of years uh tv started adding more ads and so now the average sitcom length is 22 and a half minutes so even if you wanted to to show them that way you couldn't do it anymore like there's like three and a half minutes Two, two and a half minutes too long. I know you, one thing we we talked about on an earlier episode with you is you like to you know we we talked about you doing the TG twenty four yes. set. Have you ever have you ever had a? I mean, this is much shorter than that, but yeah. have you ever done a showing of all these in in one set? I've before? watched them all in a row for sure. And uh, you know the the Perfect Lives sort of mega opera takes it it, it encompasses. Uh, you know, this three and a half hour centerpiece, which, t- which represents the Midwest, there's Atalanta acts of God, which represents the East coast and the sort of initial um, migration from Europe over to America. Uh, there's two, two CD sets that can, you know, that take up most of that. The, the complete Atalanta is a really, it's, it's a, it's a sort of a modular opera. So you have like these three component chunks that you enter, you, you sort of take a piece from here, a piece from here, a piece from here at each performance. So each one, Again, like the Wolfman is mm-hmm. 
is is changed in a, in a different way. And I've I've taken all of the conceivable pieces of Atalanta and sort of like scrambled them together and listened to, uh, you know, an approximation of like a full performance of that. And then uh, the West Coast uh, is uh, called Now Eleanor's Idea, and it's four uh, hour and a half, two hour operas uh, that sort of. Uh, represent the migration from characters in perfect lives who then go out West for different reasons. Um, And it's, I mean, it's John Cage said of perfect lives, you know, the Bible, the Quran, what, what need have we of these? We have perfect lives, you know? uh, I love it. I mean, it really does have that feel of like, this is like all of the world, you know, in this one thing. I think I've actually, I think I might've accidentally called it private lives at one point because I was referencing, I was, I was thinking of private parts, which was Mm -hmm. an early version of, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, And yeah. And again, again, and again, doing what, you know, the, 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 you know, do what I can while I can, like he was, he was putting out acts from, perfect lives for you know on on separate lps because he could only have enough money to do act one or act four you know so those would come out as separate lps and it wasn't until like the double tape came out in like 1984 that the entire sort of span of it could be seen amazing this studio looks amazing by the way because he has they bought a building when he moved to new york which just immediately like everybody's gonna get jealous i'm i am like move to new york get a building has one floor um, as his living space, one floor is his studio, and the studio is just phenomenal looking. Like top floor, beautiful sunlight, um, so much equipment, just does. Well, and it also it, it it's also looks a lot like I mean we're we're in Gray's studio right now, yeah. but but it also looks like a lot of any of our studios. Like there's like tape decks and Everything. like you know what I mean. It is there's Hot hanging there, cables on the walls. Yeah, like, there's a lot of primitive of looking yeah. things. It, it is great. so cool and and. And I guess now would be a good time to say, like, he, you know, he, they, him and his wife uh, bought the building in New York and his wife. Mimi Johnson. Exactly. And Mimi Johnson was the, uh, ran the lovely record label, which put out a lot of his. Preserves a lot of. of Yeah. Yeah. And and is still, still holding, you know, still putting out CDs of an awful lot of that stuff. Has some original LPs of, you know, some of those 70s records as well. And. Yeah, you, you can't go too wrong. Try you try anything on Lovely. It's incredible. I mean, what, so what was some of the? I can't remember if you said what was some of the first Robert Ashley stuff. Was was like automatic writing and yeah, and private um, parts. Was that kind of your early introduction to Robert Ashley? I would. Yeah, I I feel like I was. Yeah, I think it was a, a little bit of each. Yeah, the Algamargan stuff. The both the Wolfman, and then there was a an early sort of like string. It has a, a long title. I can't remember. String quartets describing the motion of large real bodies, or something like mm. that, um, which is uh, you know a very interesting sort of mix of like strings and electronics and close miking, and again, sort of sounds like you know like a Gensmint or you know some some you know like Japanese string noise or something like that, and is also incredible. But yeah, I I, I feel like um, yeah the Private Parts LP, which is an early take of uh, Act One of Perfect Lives, was one of the first things just. You know, his his way with words, his way of mm-hmm. telling a profound story, but also a very funny story, uh, you know, initially didn't vibe with me. I felt like it was like like arty guy trying to talk about the Midwest. But then I realized, like, he is that Midwest guy. He's he's from Ann Arbor. He's from, you know, a real family. And he just has a real ear for, uh, you know, just regionalisms. And uh, another interesting thing uh, in the liner notes to the Atalanta uh, Acts of God opera, one of the three sort of icon characters in that uh, is a man named Willard Reynolds, who is, you know, represents the sort of storytelling aspect of opera. Willard Reynolds was, I believe, Ashley's uncle uh, or a member of his immediate family. And like in the 40s, 50s, uh, Willard Reynolds job was professional storyteller and he would go from house to house. And, you know, before radio, before Mm -hmm. like other forms of entertainment, they said he would just go to people's houses and they would give them a meal or some money and he would just sit there and tell them one big story for the entire night. And they said he was just a master storyteller. And so, you know, and obviously he did it, you know, with the family for free all the time, but he said just to have this person that would come to your house and just weave these long elaborate stories, you know, I can't help but think that must've been a huge influence on the way he composed his operas. You know, the place I first heard of Robert Ashley was actually nurse with wound. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. The, the a, list. A miss, well, no, not even <laughs> oh, the list. Okay. A missing sense uh, oh, was right. a tribute to it. In fact, here's uh, here's what Stapleton had to say about it. A missing sense was originally conceived as a private tape to accompany my taking of LSD. When in that particular state, Robert Ashley's automatic writing was the only music I could actually experience without feeling claustrophobic and paranoid. We played it endlessly. It seemed to become part of the room, perfectly blending with the late night city ambience and the breathing of the building. 
I decided to make my own version using the basic structure of Ashley's masterpiece, but making it more personal, adding natural sound that I could hear in my environment. It should be played at very low volume. So that mm-hmm. hearing that piece, and it's one of my favorite Nurse with Wound pieces that's, you know, in the, the more ambient end of things, mm-hmm. uh, made me seek out Robert Ashley and what had inspired this piece. So that was that was sort of how I came to it. But I, I'm certain it has to be on the list, too, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure it. the automatic writing was the one that he specifically cites. And yeah, I mean, if you haven't heard it, the story of that one is that Ashley was convinced that he had... Uh, Tourette's. Tourette. He, yeah. he, he, he sort of felt he could induce Tourette's in himself. And so he locked himself in a room and tried to sort of let whatever happened happen. And he said he it didn't quite work out the way he expected it, but yeah. It, and then it, it, like I say, it combines with recordings of his neighbors playing the radio and like a French voice that like accompanies mm-hmm. his interjections and some electronics, I think. And, yeah, and, then, and then his voice is, is like, uh, affected and yes. so you basically cannot hear it doesn't sound like any actual words are no. being said but there are words but it's yeah. yeah it's a very strange muttering and it's and and like it, it blows my mind like the idea that you would take lsd and then listen to like this crazed <laughs> muttering you know <laughs> and I, then it makes I, I appreciate sense. <laughs> i appreciate steve stapleton's mind but boy that sounds that sounds like a, but you know, a heavy I, burden <laughs> i think all the robert ashley that i've heard is so just human you know like everything you hear it's not like you get that sense of like they're playing this on a spaceship and this is out in the cosmos or you're floating through here it's it's all very like rooted in like humanity and the human experience and i -hmm. I feel like everything that's intonated and said even if it's not an actual word just always comes back to you know our our feelings and emotional space and even just the cover of automatic writing, like just oh, great, yeah. like just that silhouette of like the palm trees mm-hmm. and the it, it when you when you put it with the music on the record, it that it creates a really incredible vision and a mm-hmm. really incredible atmosphere to me because it doesn't necessarily you wouldn't necessarily completely associate that cover with the sounds you know right away, but obviously once you get into it, it's you can't separate it because it's just so iconic. Yeah, it's and, it's like yeah, it's iconic. I was gonna say it like archetypal almost, but it's it's certainly something that you don't need to understand the language or the culture necessarily to to get a feeling from it. I think what's cool about private parts too is that while that you he the vocals are clear and you can hear what he's what he's saying but it almost doesn't like ma- I I can listen to that and I don't even pay attention to, to the exact words it just becomes this other thing and I love that and I think that's one way to experience it I think. He's he's incredible in in the way he sort of was sort of writing and rewriting those lines so that they had a musical quality. And if you, you can buy the the libretto of private parts or perfect lives as a hardcover book and you see, you know, the line breaks and the way, you know, cause it just sounds like common speech, but you, then you start looking at mm-hmm. like how he's able to sort of, and you know that that was thousands and thousands of word substitutions to get the rhythm and the cadence, right? I mean, you know, we're, we're already going a long way, but we could talk about, uh, you know, in Sarah Menken, Christ and Beethoven, there are men and women, other of his pieces, which is, you know, pays homage to one of the great, you know, craftsmen of, of like the curvature of personal names, John Barton Walgamot. <laughs> I mean, but that's like a whole other thing. That's a whole other episode. There's I don't even want, want to break that over oh, well, yeah. <laughs> unless you want, but yeah. yeah. I mean, maybe, look, I think, we, crack it a I think we have <laughs> as close to a Robert Ashley expert as <laughs> yeah. we're going to have. In the podcast. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I feel yeah. that like, no, please, you, you don't like, have Kyle oh. Gann in the, in the, oh, in the, in the oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So yeah. And again, it, again, it seems like such a, a perfect antecedent to, Ashley's later work, but uh, he and a, a, a poet author named Keith Waldrop were friends in, I think, the 60s. Waldrop found a book in like a random, like, I think Lower East Side or something bookstore uh, that had the name, you know, the title was something like In Sarah Hart, There Were Men and Women. And he was like, what is this? And it's by John mm-hmm. Barton Walgamot. It was it was a hardcover. It was obviously like DIY made, but in very good quality. It, it was long. It was wider than it was tall. And he opened it up and every single page was a paragraph with a nonsense sentence and then a series of personal names attached to it. And it was something like, you know, in in this in this very important case of, you know, Sarah Powell Hart, Julius Caesar, so and so, so and so something happened very dynamically. And it, it's they he and Ashley wow. tracked this guy down. He had written this book 
and then wrote a, a sequel to it called In Sarah Menken, Christ and Beethoven, There Were Men and Women, which was the first book, but with a different title. But to him, that was a sequel. He spent another 10 years writing the title because, again, he was substituting words, getting the curvature of the words exactly he right. He spent another 10 years writing the title. I'm he just going to repeat that. <laughs> he did. The, literally the exact same book plates were used on the inside. And they and they found this guy and he was a projectionist, an old guy, a projectionist, you know, uh, like uh, way up in like the, you know, the the uh, way up in like Manhattan, like way up in the, you know, the hundreds, you know, streets or whatever. And, you know, invited him to dinner, asked him about it. And he just said he had heard. Uh, like a symphony and he said as he was listening as a child he heard the names of people in the music he could hear like names going through and so wow. he got home and for decades he was working on trying to make music using personal names and he said he would put a name and they put a name next to it and he's like but nothing happened there was no spark and then he put a name another name no spark but then he realized like there's no movement there's no reason to move from one name to the next unless you write a sentence around it and he said he spent years trying to write a sentence that didn't mean anything but could still provide motion to sort of connect all these names so this robert ashley of wonderful. course robert ashley loved this idea and he said he, he asked him he's like i would like to do a recording of this and the guy said okay whatever i'm not probably not going to listen to it but uh he was just this great misanthrope he had this one thing he did it he was going to write a third book which was called something like um Beacons of Ancestry, which, again, was just a title. Mm -hmm. He had the book plate for the third book in a safe deposit box when he died. Was just waiting for a chance to print the third volume with in there, like same text. He's like, oh, yeah, of course, same text, same text. And, uh, <laughs> you know, Ashley records the entire book. Uh, and much like the Wolfman, un unlike the Wolfman, where you can hear the breath happening, he he records each page on one breath, takes a breath. They edit the breaths out. So the entire 40 Love minute that. piece is just this cascade of words. And I don't remember who did the electronics, but another person did electronics uh, and, and created certain sound modules that would sound when like there were recurring names that would appear in the composition. So if like Julius Caesar hit, you would hear a burp or a certain thing. Other things were just random bubbling electronics. But, um, you know, if you go to ubu.com and look up uh, the Robert Ashley section, you'll get a ton of this, but you get the, it, I'm giving you the incredibly, crunched down version of this story it is an absolute epic and it's so cool i've read it probably 15 20 times and it makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up every time i read it it made the hair it's, a, the, it's incredible it made the hair on the back of my neck stand up when you said that <laughs> wow and, that's more white house and uh, i was gonna uh, say yes, it is white. Right? we were just like we're, yeah, all three yeah. of us are like this is white so, house so, <laughs> but but the, the the specific white house connection is that on the some of the the last white house records um all the breath is taken out oh. of every oh, single line. Yeah. And, and I think from, I want to say from Cruz on, but I might be wrong about that. So don't quote me on that. But a bunch of the later records. That's why all the voice the, is so and, easy. And the same with the, the, um, uh, crowd pleaser consumer electronics record uh, all the all the breath is, i feel like is, even the spaces between the words mm -hmm. are taken out in yes. some way like it's, yes. it makes yes. perfect really sense yeah. it seems otherworldly can i read a line this is these well, are please. a couple of the lines by from, all means okay let's see if i can see it here she uh, goes on performance of this <laughs> okay so the uh the book begins in its very truly great manners of Ludwig van Beethoven, very heroically, the very cruelly ancestral death of Sarah Powell Hart, and had very ironically come amongst this really grand men and women to Raphael Sabatini, Georgia Day, Margaret Storm Jameson, Ford Maddox Huffer, Jean Jacques Bernard, Louis Bromfield, Frederick William Nietzsche, and Helen Brown Norden, very titanically. In their very truly great manners of Fyodor Joseph Conrad Korzenkowski, very heroically, Gertrude Ellen Mary McBrady and John Barton Wolgamott had very sardonically come amongst his very great men and women to Gabrielle Bradford, Anne Green, William Harvey Allen Jr., Washington Irving, Pierre Cornelli, Arthur Schlesinger, Mary Sandoz, St. John Greer, Irvine, and Herman Melville, very titanically. There's a lot of adverbs wow. in it. He said he had to use a lot of adverbs because they just completely destroy meaning. You know, like it just turns into this, this sort of like transportive soup. And apparently Wolgamott sent a copy of the book, which, you know, features H.L. Uh, Mencken's wife, Sarah Powell Hart, uh, in... in if you if, in as much as there's any plot like there's there's elements of John Barton Wolgamott the author meeting Sarah Powell Hart in the afterlife somehow and he yeah. mails it to H.R. Mencken who <laughs> you know whose wife was you know infirm and it may have just passed away recently so he oh gets this book and and Mencken was known as someone who would review and notate every single book he got so if you go to the Mencken library there is a notated copy of in you know in 
you know, whatever. And Sarah Menken, Christ and Beethoven, there are men and women, you know, with all his like angry notations, like what is this garbage? And he wrote, you know, Wolgamot back and said, why do you write this balderdash? And and Wolgamot wrote back and said, I just like writing this way. Uh, I think that should be wow. the way we do Patreon people now. What's that? Make it fun. Just write everybody's name in that fashion. Oh, yeah. oh, oh, yeah. oh use the That's structure. Great. Oh, yeah. We're going to have to do that. Mental note. That's amazing. This is a. Uh... And, and that's the thing. I mean, I really love the sort of like, because there, you know, there are the sort of like noise adjacent elements of Robert Ashley. And, and you know, obviously you've met any number of people who are like yeah fucking wolfman man fucking rules you know but like his his work is so multifaceted and and so thoughtful at every level and mm-hmm. is so open to opportunities and ideas like it's just so worth it to listen to him at, even at the points where the music might sound more like laurie anderson or might sound more like 80s sort of like downtown new york performance art type music like the the words are still there the ideas are still there you know, even up until his, you know, when he was, you know, albums like, uh, you know, Concrete or um, Celestial Excursions, you know, with uh, with his sort of performing company, like there's just there's he never ran out of ideas and he never ran out of humanity. And, and it's it just just absorb him, man. Oh, I, yeah. I, I agree. Yeah, yeah I, I, mean, I was just I just had to make a note because like, you know, so often we do things without fully being aware of why we're like, I'm doing it because it feels good. And. It's so interesting when you meet an artist who is like internalizing why they do things and then ensuring that it feels the way they want it to feel. And it just it brings like this whole new level and it makes it so interesting. I think that's why we're all just so like blown away, because for somebody to put so much effort into even just pronouncing a tone, like really, really like thought it out, drew the diagram, wrote the book on how to produce the tone that he produced. It's just it's phenomenal. Wow. You now you did you, you have any other notes that you took down that you wanted to to highlight there, Tara? I see you have some did we get to all those? Uh was there anything else you, you I felt? think I think that Chris has gone above and beyond. I have nothing to add. This uh, was definitely that was an above and beyond. Yeah. I, I got more than I bargained for no, with it, doing it's this just episode. like that <laughs> feeling when you're like, you know, thinking about the life of, of an artist, you know, and somebody who who made their art encapsulate all the things they did and then the people they touched became, you know, were interesting and highlighted. And um, it's just such a it's such a treat to go exploring because every little wing that you pass through is just inspirational. I got really obsessed with Marcel Duchamp a few years ago and yeah. a similar sort of thing. Surrounded by like, interesting. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Completely different level at every point in his life. Yeah. So, okay. So to try to break down so that people can, you know, find, so the, mm-hmm. the, what we listened to was the Algamargan CD. Yes. Now is the Algamargan LP different? Yeah. I, 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 without doing an AB directly, uh, there's a three CD set called uh, source music of the avant-garde, which is, the accompaniment to a book called uh, same thing, but it was a collection of magazines that were written in the sixties. Uh, and it really did like they, they printed scores and they showed you kind of like how it was done and how to do it. Uh, the three CD set has the 15 minute version that was on the original 10 inch, which I think was the original way you would have heard it. And probably the way white house heard it. The Algamargan CD is 18 minutes versus 15, but the LP is the original 15 minute version that you hear mm-hmm. on the source, I believe. So if you get both of them and it's a one, obviously it's a one sided LP, uh, it's in classic sort of just great looking Algamargan style. Looks great. I'd like uh, to play them simultaneously. That sounds fun. Yeah. Well. Yeah. <laughs> One will end before the other, but the, you'll have a good time for 15, 15 of those 18 minutes and a good time <laughs> for those other three too. <laughs> so basically just grab anything that's yeah. the yeah. Wolfman and it's going to be, yeah. you're, you're going to be rewarded. The book is, is just called uh, Robert Ashley, American composers by Kyle Gann on uh, university of Illinois press. And there's also a, a documentary called four composers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's Peter, one- Peter Greenaway. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was it was four one one hour documentaries on John Cage, Philip Glass, Meredith Monk, mm-hmm. and Robert Ashley for I think like BBC Four or something like that. Uh, Mystic Fire put it on a VHS back in the day. I found mine in a in a Borders bargain bin for ten dollars. Heck yeah! Um, yeah. <laughs> and it is uh, it's very strange. It's a it's it's actually working on Perfect Lives, the TV version, which is the version that's on the DVD you can get from Lovely. Uh, but it sounds completely different. It's a lot more chaotic. Like you can't hear his words at all. It it sounds like it's intentionally being scrambled. And I, it sort of put me off of perfect lives for a couple of years hearing that. It might've been one of the first places I heard Ashley and thought this, I don't know. I don't get it. Like he was talking Mm -hmm. in the interviews. He's talking about all these sort of like crucial concepts about, you know, the work and what it's about and, 
the Midwest and the way we talk. And then they would cut to the actual performances. And whether it was just the sound in the documentary or what, like the vocals are so garbled. It was just him standing in front of like a video monitor and this sort of just this vocal garble going on. So it's it's interesting if you're already an Ashley fanatic. It's something, you know, worth looking up. But it, to me, I would rather you go look up the actual Perfect Lives, the, the, the three CD set or double tape or whatever. And there's so many fun things on YouTube. Yes, just absolutely. Inter- interviews All and different, performances. Yeah. And, yeah. and Ubu probably as well. Right? Ubu, Ubu Web, yeah, Ubu.com has several of the albums, and several of the lovely albums even actually available for download. But, you know, support lovely records. I mean, oh, yeah. still so yeah. many. So many of those are in print and available at, you know, varying prices, as well as some really good books. There's a. There's a, a hardcover book uh, that explains all of Robert Ashley's compositions. It's like $65, so it's it's an investment, but uh, I'm pulling the trigger soon. Heck yeah. Well, pull Amazing. the trigger, teleport back here, and, and uh, maybe we'll do it. Maybe <laughs> we'll do a, re- maybe we'll do yeah. a uh, podcast reading of it. Oh my God. <laughs> Cutting out all the breaths. Noise no Extra breaths. Book Club. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> awesome. Well, Chris, thank you so much. This was... Thank you. This was so, mm-hmm. such, a, such a cool episode. We love doing these kind of proto noise history of noise episodes mm-hmm. that predate a lot of this you know the general stuff we talk about so just worth remembering this this was recorded record you know written and recorded the same year that a hard day's night came out keep that in mind yeah wow oh, and thank you chris for retaining so much information uh, oh, like it's you. it's really great and uh, so interesting to listen. I've to read talk. all of these things at least forty times. Like it's just there. <laughs> I can't I can't stop. But thank you. Awesome. <laughs> thank you so much. You've been listening to Noise Extra. Noise Extra is brought to you by Chondritic Sound, a home to noise artists for over seventeen years. By Verdant Weapons, maker of quality contact microphones and noise devices, and by our Patreon supporters. You can find our Patreon at Patreon.com/NoiseExtra. And your support really helps. You can find us on Instagram at Noise Extra, on the web at noiseextra.com, one E in those, and on Twitter at Noise Extra, with three A's at the end. Thank you for listening to us and to Noise.